Oh, this is going to be a weirdo, and I can't remember his actual name. I just remember his Twitter handle. Um. <laughs> That's good enough. It's like, that'll, that'll be able, we'll be able to get in yeah. touch with him. Welcome to the Geek and Review, a podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. We brought back Ian Nelson, the co-founder of Hotshot, to talk about some changes in MCLE states about the approval of continuing legal education programs. We thought we'd make it into a somewhat of a roundtable discussion, so we brought along Sarah Glassmeyer from Ray and Court and Margaret Naughton, CLE manager at McDermott, Will, and Emery, to bounce some ideas on what CLE should look like and about some of the major obstacles we struggle with today. So Marlene, normally we try to hide all of our technical difficulties that we have in in the magic of post-editing after, <laughs> but man, did I have some serious technical difficulties during this interview. So I, I am really glad and, and thankful that uh, you're ready to step in and take over most of this interview. So thank, thanks for covering me on this one. Yeah, no problem. That was that was pretty pretty terrible, really. <laughs> it was. It was very frustrating. Very frustrating. So, well, stick around for that. But uh, let's get to a, a special presentation of this week's information inspirations. So I ran across a really neat uh, Twitter thread uh, last week, and it made me go out and buy this book. That and then ask uh, the author of the book to come in. So Jessica Gore is a 3L at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Jessica, you wrote this uh, Federal Rules of Evidence, the 2021 edition, and as you put it, it is designed for lawyers in in 2021, not 1921. So, what what inspired you? Uh, first of all, welcome, and uh, second, what inspired you to write this less than 60 page rules of evidence book? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. That was awesome. My my first official podcast. Uh, I'm sure it won't be the last. This is exciting. I know this is awesome. For starters, I did not uh, write the book of the Federal Rules of Evidence. It's more of a, just a, a, a modernly edited um, right. version of the Federal Rules. Okay, I just want to make that clear. The, the why is pretty interesting. Before law school, um, and just so most of you guys know, I'm a quite non-traditional student. Um, my uh, mid-30s, um, I have a three-year-old. I have had several jobs. My bachelor's is in music technology. I was a game sound designer for video games for a long time. And then I uh, switched to marketing, branding, design, um, which has always kind of been a really big thread in my life since uh, since high school, really. The And then you know, I went to law school, so obviously trademarks found me. Right. I noticed from day one, I mean, even through the application process, that design is not really a priority for a lot of people in the legal profession. I come from the field where it's my job to make people look good and to make information be well read by people or easily read. You know, the foundations of marketing is can they tell what you're selling in like one sentence or one picture or one logo? It's frustrating, honestly, (laughs) you know, when you get these books and you're like, what are you saying? What are you trying to say here? So that's the kind of stuff that instantly I noticed um, was combative to my background and was, I knew there was area for improvement, but I just didn't know how. You know, the further I went in and got more into design and trademarks, um, I actually took art law and my one and only large official paper in, in uh, law school was on fonts, naturally. So that's kind of why. I mean, that's what inspired me. Um, nothing was out there that I wanted. 
personally as a student. So what is it about this book and in the way that you've set it up that makes this version of the federal mm-hmm. rules of evidence unique and, mm-hmm. as you say, in tune with how people digest information today? It's funny because it's not even, to me, it's not rocket science, but you know, I, I did, you know, you noticed I tossed it out there and everybody was like, oh my gosh, somebody <laughs> right. finally did it. You know, it's just small things, right? It's just not, you know, using a, a sans serif font, you know, very modern fonts that are easier on the eyes, you know, as law students and lawyers and legal professionals, professors, we're just constantly, constantly looking at dense content. Mm-hmm. And that was my, like the one goal, because I'm in evidence this semester. I don't even know if I've made that obvious, but yeah, I actually have an evidence midterm due tonight. <laughs> so, <laughs> my professors are listening. I wrote you a book. So it's so easy to make this better. So modern fonts, spacing of the words is really important. There's very small changes you can make in design or decisions in design that you can make that affect how people digest information, but they're kind of subconscious. Spacing between the paragraphs, between the, between the words, text that's in bold, the indentation of the outlines. I mean, it sounds very meticulous, but it is. And as designers, we notice these things, but somebody that's not familiar with that is just going to say, oh my gosh, this looks so good. This is so much easier to do, but they can't really articulate why. Yeah. So how's the reaction been? Um, like I said, I'm here on your (laughs) podcast. Uh, it's actually been awesome. It's been really cool. You know, recently in the beginning of the summer, I launched a kind of a similar ish thing called IP illustrated. And that was also a result of frustration of the lack of just modern legal tools online. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Uh, I, I found it really interesting the fact that, you know, here you are, a, a law student taking a class that you found something that was frustrating, that you knew you could do a better job um, and than what was on, on the market right now. So you've got a platform here. If there are other people listening and they know they've got kind of the same itch that they see something that's broken and they want to fix it, what's your advice to tell these law students or, or lawyers um, how, how to attack that? Yeah. I love this question, by the way, and I probably wrote the most notes on it. <laughs> um, I, lo- I love giving back. I've had some awesome mentors in my life, and I take every opportunity I can to, to tell people about stuff like this. So the, the biggest thing is um, if you are bothered by something, even if it's outside the legal industry, if you're bothered by something, chances are somebody else's too. And the easiest way these days is to just ask people. And you know, obviously, Twitter is a great platform for that. Just say like, Hey, what do you guys need? I'm currently working on the federal rules of civil procedure in the same format as this because I know that that's needed even more than this um, based on based on feedback. And the thing about the internet, I think that's cool now too, is that you don't even have to do a whole project. You can just do like a sample and throw it out there and see if people like it. I think perfectionism holds a lot of people back from trying things and you don't have to be perfect and people understand they get it. Our our guest last week kind of said the same thing with Mm -hmm. the, the, especially in in the legal field, we don't like to prototype things. We like to put something out perfect. And I think you just, you just hit it on the head that, that Mm -hmm. you can put samples out there. You can prototype something. And the the reason you do that is so you can get that feedback without Mm -hmm. investing so much time in something that people really don't want. So yeah, exactly. Way to put it into practice. So yeah. And then you have to be passionate about what you're doing or you burn out. Yeah. Just be passionate about what you do. And I think people, people feel that and they, 
they see that yeah. and they get excited about it. So. Well, I'm I'm pretty sure Jessica that, that everyone's listening to this can feel your passion behind this this project <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, well, I want to I want to thank you for taking a few minutes to to talk with us about this. You got the uh, Federal Rules of Evidence 2021 edition. Um, it's I know I ordered mine on Amazon. I'll put some links out on the show notes as well. So Jessica Gore, uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. CLEs are known for being boring, rigid, and last minute for most participants. We thought we would bring in three forward-thinking colleagues to talk about what they'd like to see in the next generation of CLE courses. We'd like to welcome Margaret Naughton, CLE Manager for McDermott, Will & Emery, Sarah Glassmeyer, Legal Tech Curator at Rayencourt, Inc., and Ian Nelson, Co-Founder at Hotshots, to the Geek & Review. Welcome, everybody. Thanks. Great to be here. So we had Ian on the show before, but we're going to be talking with him and the others about some developments there that Ian had at Hotshot, and we thought we'd bring in Sarah and Margaret as well to kind of have this roundtable conversation on uh, CLE in general and what what we really need to be doing uh, going forward in the CLE world. So I guess the first question, Ian, is can you tell us a little bit about what Hotshot has been doing to kind of morph some of the CLE uh, practices? Yeah, of course. And um, just a quick thanks to you all for being on this podcast and talking about the issue. I think it's a really interesting and important issue and exciting time to be talking about it. So thank you to everyone for being part of this. So at Hotshot, we have had some developments recently in the world of CLE, and it's been interesting reception. We launched CLE a few weeks ago, and to explain that, I suppose it's worth just a half step back as to what we're all about, which is really short, very practical videos on a host of various legal, business, and tech topics. And when we started Hotshot, really, we were not going after the CLE space. We wanted to make content that was just really designed for, for learning for associates and students and lawyers. And we didn't want to be constrained by CLE rules. We wanted things to be as short as possible, which unfortunately wasn't really, the, it was, that, that's not really designed for the CLE rules. Yeah, so, succinct and, uh, and CLE are not in, in the same category. <laughs> no. <I think>. It, <laughs> it, not quite. It, no. So over the years, we, we got to the point where we have about 250 of these short videos now. And the reception has been great, but of course, lawyers need their CLE, and law firms have been asking over the years, when can you do CLE? If only you can do CLE. The lawyers love the content, but CLE would be good. Yeah. And we say, yes, CLE would be good, but we, we really can't because we want to keep the essence of the videos, make them really short. We launched something uh, just a couple weeks ago where we were able to put together collections of short videos on particular topics that people could watch whenever they want. And once they hit an hour, they'll get their credit. We really think it's the best of both worlds. It's very short videos designed for learning that also now have CLE if you were to watch all the videos in a particular track. So that's how we're able to manage the CLE. It's not as though one 10-minute video on its own gives you credit, period, full stop. Which is too bad, but interesting. <laughs> and and I understand, Ian, that you can kind of mix and match too. You don't have to have it on a specific track. Is that right? The CLE tracks from Hotshot do cover discrete topics. So it's a track might be on litigation, or a track is on M and A, or a track is on accounting for lawyers. So within a track, things are related. 
So at this moment in time, it's not as though, to answer your question, you could take one from one video from M&A and one from bankruptcy and one from accounting and make your own hour long. We did organize things. So they're curated playlists, if you will, mm-hmm. that qualify for credit. And we have credit in almost all MCLE states. We're just waiting on a handful uh, of some states. that's still a brand new feature. And you'll customize, too, for different firms. Is that right? Yeah, some firms have asked for special learning tracks. So we'll work with various firms that say, well, we would like a track for our first years that cover XYZ in corporate or in litigation, or we want an accounting boot camp track. So we are doing those custom tracks for firms. Some, not even with CLE, really, there might be some associate tracks or tracks for law schools out of the world of CLE. So it's still, what's great about it, it's still designed for the to the learning that people need rather than just for the CLE. The CLE is, is an extra side benefit now. So the sort of marketing, sort of smart-ass marketing line is short videos made for learning, not CLE, now with CLE. <laughs> now with CLE. That's how we're presenting it to the market, yeah. <laughs> well, because, I mean, that's that's been a problem, I guess, for a long time, I guess, with, with CLE, is that people take it because they have to, not because they're actually learning anything from it. Um, you know, we all joke that w- towards the end of the of the year, when you know your license is up, you take anything. It doesn't even matter what it is, as long as it has points to it. Yeah, in in Texas, uh, we have communications with attorneys that we haven't had all year at the end of their birthday mm-hmm. month because that's mm-hmm. how they do it here. And so we can always tell when, when somebody has just celebrated a birthday because they start asking us where all the CLE credit is. Exactly. But you think about now, especially with people working remotely, these associates need to learn things on the job very quickly, right? Um, an associate might be asked to do diligence or draft an interrogatory and they have to learn how to do that. So it just seems naturally should get credit for that and not have two mindsets. Like, where can I get my credit? and Where can I learn what I need to do to do my job? They're not always one and the same. Sometimes they are, but not always. So we're trying to marry the two. And Sarah, I'll, I'll bring you in on this. Uh, having worked previously at, at places like the ABA, where you've had to deal with setting up classes for CLE, for getting accreditation, I guess, in a way, even kind of looking looking at the rules, are we at a point now, probably thanks to things like the pandemic, where the industry is looking to a different way of producing education for continuing legal education? I really, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, because that's the thing. It's when you asked me to be on this program, I thought, oh, CLE, that's a pretty simple topic. Very nice, very smooth, very no controversy there whatsoever. Then I you know, woke up for about five minutes yeah. and I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's so many things I hate about this subject. Um, yeah, so that's the thing. Like my path towards realizing that CLE was kind of a broken system was back in like 2008, 2009 when I was a baby librarian. I got contracted to do a CLE for, um, I think it was like MBI or something like that. And I you know, got to go to a hotel conference room in Louisville for two days. And it was very exciting. Mm-hmm. But that was the thing. Like I, you know, I I'd submitted my program. I submitted my outline, my slides, everything. They're like, this is great. And then I did it and I was hyped up on coffee. And so I took 45 minutes instead of 50. And so then like the next day I got this email from the organizer saying like, oh, we're in trouble now because you didn't go the full hour. I was like, I, but it, it's the same content. Like it's everything was there. It's just, I was hyper and I spoke really <laughs> fast and there was a no to no. So I had to like write something certified. You know, so I was like, this is so dumb, but yeah. And I think because, you know, again, like also when I saw this topic, you know, I thought about for more than five minutes, I realized 
Oh, are we talking about CLE or are we talking about like the skills that lawyers actually need to learn to continue and others in the legal profession to continue to excel and, and, and deal with the changing landscape of law? Because, you know, I am. I wait, graduated wait law. You're, you're saying those aren't the same thing? I know. That's the thing. Like, it, it'd be wonderful <laughs> we could merge them. And I think even, you know, this. You know, one of the things is ABA model rule 1.1 comment 8, which most states have adopted now, which includes as part of being competent and which no one ever says exactly, it outlines exactly what you have to do to be quote unquote competent. You have to have technological competence. And that's the thing, like not, I only want to say like eight or 10 states have included, and I haven't looked at this for a year now, but not every state even like includes a technological competence CLE as part of the requirements. But, you know, just the, the variation, we don't know what it means to be competent. We don't know what classes you need to do it. And that's the thing, like CLE just ends up being, oh my God, it's December and I need to get my professional responsibility one hour and I need to also get 12 other credit hours. So I'm just going to take real estate law. That sounds exciting. And it's free. And it's in my you know, firm lunchroom. It's, in the, right, do it. it's in the right time frame. It's like, yeah, let's do yeah. that. But yeah, I'm, I'm thinking now that we can't really do in-person things and that we've proven that the technology is there that you can do either on demand or even just a virtual you know, log in and do things. But I would love to see more, especially when you're doing things like technology skills, which, you know, there's knowledge we can get with Sage on the stage listening to our presentation and slides. But like so many things you need to have hands on, like actually do this, like push this button on your computer and you will get this skill and learn how to do this activity. You're going to have to have more interactive, more digital delivery of educational content. I'm an institutionalist at, deep down, and so I love, like, you know, I understand we have to have some way of you know, certifying or understanding what people are doing to continue their education, but the way we do it currently is, is broken. And if there's a way we can figure out how to ensure that people are continuing their education and are gaining new skills to deal with the rapidly changing world, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick, uh, Sarah, yeah. and just say, if you had to pick like one thing that you would start with to fix, what, what, what would you do? I would go with different delivery delivery methods. And as far as not requiring it be our based on hours in the chair, mm-hmm. you know, somehow certified competence in any other measurement, but ours. Why do firms have such a fascination with hours? Like it has to be hours. So hours of CLE, hours of billable time. What what is it about hours? I and it's such a weird measurement that because everyone is so different and, and variations of speed, you know, and like when you first do a contract, you know, it takes you so many hours to do it, but like you get faster and faster and faster, but you you know, it's yeah, it's it's the worst metric yeah. in the world to measure anything, and we're tied to it. Well, and I would say, especially <laughs> with with educational material. Um, sorry, am I? Is it me that's slow? All righty. Um, is he? Let's see. Is he frozen? Frozen? No, he's gone. He's gone. All right. Well, let me ask. A, I'm just going to ask Margaret yeah. a question to what <laughs> to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. So, you know, Margaret, what do you think about? this new type of model that Ian's talking about where they're sort of bite-sized, you know, maybe more adult learning compatible types of format um, that, you know, really addresses competencies. I mean, you know, how, how as a, a CLE professional in, you know, a, a big law law firm, you know, how do you think that's, that's going to help? 
I mean, I think it's really interesting what Ian and Hotshot are doing. Certainly, um, when I first heard that they were offering CLEs, I was thinking of, you know, they have their 10, 15-minute snippets. How on earth are they getting this accredited? And um, tell me, because I'm jealous. I want to figure out, you know, how can I make that work? Because so many times it has to be minimum half hour just to get a half hour credit. So the idea of taking these snippets that focus perhaps on a specific competency and building it into an hour program, I think it's going to be really interesting and beneficial to associates if they're able to have these mini curriculums, it seems like, to be able to talk about the basics of a deal through going through the deal. I mean, I think it just it's, there's a lot of different ways that they can be able to start with the basics and lead up to something more advanced within an hour. Um, I think that's going to be something that definitely resonates with a lot of associates and even more experienced uh, attorneys looking to get a refresher. I think there's still a drive where people would love to have something that's a little bit more in line with adult learning today, which is, you know, having those short bursts of learning. You know, it's just the world of CLE is not there. And as we were discussing, it's, it's still very much time-based. And from what I've heard, that's not going to be changing anytime soon, unfortunately. I'm wondering if you can kind of weave something like this into like internal core competency requirements, um, you know, and make this sort of, this is, this is part of the education plan for, and professional development plan, you know, for newer attorneys, Mm -hmm. if that's a potential solution. Yeah, I, I certainly think that there's a, the potential there and the ability to take, as you said, some of these nuts and bolts type topics and provide them in snippets that, you know, I can, you know, focus on this bit first, digest it, come back later after I perhaps, you know, possibly practice that a little bit. And then, you know, over the course of, you know, starting and stopping, you eventually get the hour of credit. Um, because again, the nice thing too is, you don't have to sit there in the one you know, hour start to finish. You can take breaks and stop and restart, which I think would also really help if you're focused on a specific document or mem- memorandum or something and you want to be able to focus on what is it about this that I need to really know and learn, practice it, and then come back and say, oh, okay, like that was only 10 minutes. I don't have to rewatch a 60-minute program to see if I got that right or if I was understanding that correctly. I can rewatch this 10-minute portion and then continue on to the next level. So I think that's really interesting. I think there's a lot that can be done with that. I think it opens more doors than um, people may realize. Well, we've had Kat Moon and Allison Carroll on who talk a lot about the the Delta model lawyer. And, um, you know, it seems to me and, and, you know, Ian, I'll throw this to you that this this could be a good delivery model for the type of instruction that they might need with CLE built in. You know, you can tell us sort of what you're you're offering. You mentioned a couple of the tracks, but do you have things on the business of law? Do you have things on technology in the law, or is it more just legal application? Yeah, it's it's a bit of all of that, really. And just to go back to something Margaret said, that's the use case we're seeing play out now. Exactly right. So so we're working now with a whole bunch of firms on their fall onboardings and building these CLE tracks into their junior associate onboarding programs. And the other cool thing, too, is as more firms are embracing the blended learning flipped classroom model as a way to make trainings more engaging, they're using these short bite-sized videos as the pre-work for the flipped classrooms, but watching the videos will get them credit for CLE. So 
it's all these multi-purpose uses now that we're seeing and whether it's a hotshot video or not, right? I mean, there's just so many great things out there that could be used in these, in these new ways. But yes, on the content question, we are covering, we've really expanded. So now we have things on accounting and finance for lawyers and how to use Excel and data analysis and how to do valuation models in Excel in addition to all the, the practice area stuff. So we're starting to, to get out there in terms of breadth and depth of the content. So, Sarah, um, not to take away from what Ian has done, but but there are certainly other resources out there that uh, sort of have a different model in terms of, of learning. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah. One that, and I think this is also, you know, Casey Flaherty, and I think he still was partnered with Darth Vaughn. That might be something we might need to double check, fact check that. He started Persertus Legal. So he when he was a Kia um, general or counsel um, you know, he, he tested his outside counsel for basic skills in like Word and Excel and found that lawyers couldn't do it. He's like, I'm not paying for you guys to figure out how to use Excel. And so he started this company to do training on basic office technology, which we don't teach in law schools, but it's something that you use every day. And it's an interactive tool. So it's not just you watch a video or listen to a lecture. It's like you really download the software and you, you are in native word and you're going back and forth and trying to figure out how to do these various skills. It's hands-on training. Another one that I really was surprised by how good it was, um, was LinkedIn Learning. Um, it was, um, this is for the librarians out there, it was Linda, L-Y-N-D-A dot com, which a lot of public libraries have. Linda, oh my God, I forgot all about that. <laughs> I haven't heard that in forever. Yeah, and so it was purchased by, I can't remember if it was purchased by Microsoft, and then when LinkedIn, LinkedIn became part of Microsoft, it became that, or LinkedIn, LinkedIn directly. LinkedIn. So they have a ton of you know basic kind of office skills as far as, again, the Word, the Excel, the how to do basic HTML, but they have really expanded as far as, you know, things that I really think lawyers could use as far as like, what is artificial intelligence? How do search engines work? What is blockchain? You know, these basic things that we kind of hear about, especially if you are now like trying to find legal technology that it, it it's not directly made for like, this is artificial intelligence for lawyers, but it's applicable very much so. Like when you are pitched a product that says, oh, we use artificial intelligence to do this. You understand, are they talking natural language processing? They're talking machine learning. Is it really, you know, what do they mean when they say that? Um, and that was the thing when I taught law schools, it was, do we have the Westlaw or the Lexus representatives come in and teach it? Or should we teach like basic things as far as that? This is how a search engine works. And this is how you search a digital corpus of your know, law or whatever. So it's that kind of thing where it's, it's not necessarily specifically, this is how you use this product. It's, the underlying skill set that you can get and then apply to other things. And hopefully when your product changes the interface, you're not completely lost because you've got the underlying skills understood. So yeah, so Proceris and LinkedIn Learning are two I really, really like. A little bit more kind of in the legal innovation um, zone, Bucerus Law School, which is out of Germany, but I know um, um, Professor Dan Katz at Chicago Kent is one of the professors there. But yeah, they after COVID, they started offering it for free, you know, and it was a, everyone can log in and just kind of learn basic. And it was, a, it was more of a course, you know, so it wasn't just a one hour commitment. It was two or three hours a week for a couple of weeks, but yeah, it was, it's more in depth learning and it's more of gaining skills and knowledge. 
like those are like especially for Sirtis and LinkedIn Learning are the ones I really really like as far as I was very surprised at how good they were as far as gaining skills and not just sitting there watching a video. Yeah. I know all three of you have experience with, you know, either, you know, organizing conference programs you know, or, or developing a product or managing accreditation. You've all touched on this sort of accreditation piece. When you're looking at that, what types of hurdles, you know, have you had to overcome with these MCLE boards? And Ian, I guess I'll start with you. They haven't been hurdles that have blocked us from anything, I suppose, but it's just configuring everything in the right way so that we do get the credit that, that we want to be able to offer the lawyers. So what we had to do was take our course materials that we have on a video by video basis and put them together and collate them for the whole track, for example, so that an hour has 20 or 30 pages or whatever it has to have, um, as well as the proper interactive features, right? Um, the interactive thing, it's not that high a hurdle, right? If you think of a traditional traditional format, which is just wait for the code to pop up and then write it down to prove that you were there. Um, our videos have quizzes to actually show that you learned something along the way, and we have some other interactive elements. And interestingly enough, the quizzes are optional. That's not a requirement for the CLE rules. But since we have so many short videos, just clicking the act of clicking to the next videos was able to be interactive enough because you can't get through the hour without being there and clicking to next, 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 next. So we, we added in optional videos, but it's not an actual requirement. So that, that was really the basics of it and, I, and the time, right? We had to make sure that we had at least an hour, uh, depending mm -hmm. on the jurisdiction. Now, Margaret, I mean, I know that uh, you mentioned that in another life you managed accreditation at the ABA. What have you found? Like, What are, what are the sticking points, really, in, in terms of accreditation? and getting programs through. Yeah, I kind of like what Ian said is it's not so much hurdles as I think the well, the biggest hurdle would be the fact that there's no single definition for what qualifies for CLE. So you have to take stock of where you want to seek accreditation and create your own baseline standards to determine based on these states and these requirements that they have for interactivity and written materials and time minimums, or if they're a 50 or 60 minute state, what are the baseline requirements in order for a program to potentially get approved for credit? And once you can start training your attorneys and staff and, and colleagues to know, like, make sure that your program is, you know, the targeted audience is attorneys and increasing attorney competency and you know, written materials can be used as um, a resource for later use, um, not just, you know, a skeleton outline. Um, once you have that in place, there's a lot of different ways that you can look at accrediting some really interesting programs. Um, you know, one that we did back when we worked together, Marlene, was a harassment training for lawyers in Illinois. And that's not something that we necessarily thought we would be able to get accredited, but we thought, we have everything that we need in order to at least try and kind of like what Ian did and said, you know, here are all the pieces of the puzzle. We just have to put them in the right order and we have to be able to show the picture. And once the state was able to say like, yeah, no, that is, that is learning. That is going to improve competency. They were totally on board with it. The other thing that I really encourage everyone to do is, you know, build the relationships with our states and just have conversations to say, this is what we're thinking of doing what what piece of the puzzle am I missing? Or what is it that I'm not, you know, maybe understanding or 
what is it that can potentially cover a lot of different bases for a lot of different states? For me, the, the biggest hurdle, again, is the fact that you have 46 different states with 46 different requirements, and every single one of them has a different mechanism for accreditation. So really determine where you want to get credit and you know create a baseline standard for your shop. Yeah, so I'll follow up with Sarah about that part about, again, if you're trying to get a program developed for accreditation in multiple states, um, you know, with everybody having different requirements, I mean, do you do you sort of go to the, the most restrictive and go for that? Or do you take some other sort of tact? My experience was we kind of just went through the ABA central office and they then <laughs> sent it out to everyone, which was nice. But also, you know, for me, it wasn't like content a pro- being a problem. For me, it was, again, due to the physical facilities that I had, like the biggest issues. And the one thing I particularly remember, you know, we were having a, it was a conference session and we had the room set up um, auditorium style, you know, with the chairs. And then we had to change it so everyone had a table and then we had to give everyone a pad of paper so they could take notes. And it, <laughs> that was a requirement before they would consider it for CLE. I was like, well, this, this is maybe not the best use of time, but okay. <laughs> we, will, <laughs> we will do that. <laughs> but now people have their pad of paper and so... But yeah, I mean, it's like, for me, it's always been like nitpicky stuff like that that drives me crazy. Like, I can understand content that you want to say, like, maybe we don't feel that this is necessary for our state, but. (laughs) Yeah, the written surface requirement is one of of quite a few that you have to stop and think, what year are we in? Yeah. (laughs) Here's the other one I'll throw out there. And, you know, I'm sure I'll get some flames over this, but about requiring attorneys to have to teach the class, you know, yeah. why, why, why do we still need that? Particularly when we're talking about things other than practicing law, where you know you may have people that are are not attorneys uh, or or non-practicing attorneys, they might be the best to actually deliver the content. Yeah, you know, when when you asked the question about hurdles, I thought I should probably say something about one hurdle being who's creating the content, who's best to create the content. We had, fortunately, when we were doing all of our accounting stuff, we did have lawyers involved, but at the end of the day, it's not always a lawyer that should be teaching the basics of accounting and finance. Like we had investment bankers from places like Goldman Sachs, you know, helping us with courses on valuation. It, it seems a shame that that couldn't qualify on its own unless a lawyer was involved. And then you go out into the heavy duty tech stuff and AI and things like that we've been discussing. Yeah, it seems like it seems like a bit of a disconnect. Yeah, and when I've asked the question in the past as to you know why this requirement is in place in certain states, the general response has been, well, if any questions come up that need to be directly related back to the practice of law, that there is an actual lawyer that can speak to that. Whether or not that increases uh, the benefits of that topic or you know really helps answer the question. Who knows? I mean, it, but that's kind of the response is, you know, they want to make sure that a lawyer can speak to the legality of, of the topic. Definitely box checking. Like, that's all it is now. But I mean, I think it goes back to even law school. Like, where do we encourage this love of learning and, and, and an idea that you're continually improving yourself in, in the law school experience? You know, there it's just, again, you're trying to get black letter law and survive emotionally until you can take the bar exam. And then it's 
at what point in time does any of that rela relate to the practice of law where you would see like, oh, this is a skill I need to do? Because again, like depending on what area you are, it's so much just churn, 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 try to get through the day that you don't have a time to realize, oh, this is something I could be doing better until, unless you go to like a conference like Clio or something and someone say like, hey, here's this concept called process improvement or here's this concept called design thinking. But like even that, you know, when do you have the time to then like sit down and do it? I don't think we do enough to encourage, and it's a, I think it's a cat moon term, you know, something about like radical curiosity that you just constantly want to think about how to improve yourself. How can I do this better? How can I, what should I be learning? So cause that's what you, know, I kind of divide things up into like skills and knowledge and then hands on things. And like between all three, like maybe knowledge is something that we currently hit in CLE, but even then it's not because I want to learn something new or I think whatever I'm learning in the CLE is actually going to affect how I practice law or how it changed how I live my life. It's a box check right now. And I think also like that's the thing like you know, where you have like these advertisements from bar associations or other CLE providers where it is like, you know, December, you know, in many jurisdictions, hey, 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 do you have your hours in? Like, here's a bunch of courses. To take. You know, it just is like... It's a wink and a nod always that no one actually cares about this. It's always just like, just get your hours in, sign the paper and move on. And Here, here's the ethics. Here's the ethics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even know we have fun ones. Like in, like in California, you can go to traffic court and also do like a chocolate tasting. Have we even like thought about doing that in law? Like just something. Is that true? Yeah. It's, oh yeah. They have like there's a whole there. world of traffic court classes and fun experiences you can do to get your points off your license. It's, Oh, we lost Greg again. <laughs> I was just going to say, Greg, are you there? All right. So, um, so Ian, um, when we talked earlier, I think you said that the new model you are rolling out, um, you actually, you were influenced quite a bit from how they do things in the UK. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. And I'm certainly not an expert in the in the rules and systems there. So if I get something wrong, please, please forgive me. But I think I have the gist of it. Um, we'll let you slide. <laughs> yeah, please do. Uh, a few years ago, my partner, Chris, and I took a, a trip over to London and met with a whole bunch of firms. We learned a lot about their system over there. And their CPD system was very much like the CLE system in the States. And what happened was I think they ended up dropping the current system they had because it was starting to be seen as more of a tick the box. It wasn't accomplishing what it was set out to accomplish. Things like requirements weren't tied to the actual practice area people were in, and maybe the format of learning wasn't quite up to date. So now what they have is at the end of a year, the lawyers there have to certify, self-certify that, that he or she has done what they needed to do over the course of the year to improve their practice for themselves, for their clients, all that kind of thing. So in their own judgment, that they seek out things that would help them as a lawyer in their practice for their clients. And anything counts. So a pro certis quiz, for example, uh, a hotshot video, a, a two-minute thing, an eight-hour thing, learning about tech, whatever they think counts, counts. And that's that. It, it's pretty loosey-goosey. And I think also to put some structure around it, I believe that the big firms are not just big firms, but firms in London have their own sort of guidelines. So firm XYZ in London may say, we would like our attorneys to hit 20 hours related to your practice area, it could be tech, whatever, and they have their own little guidelines that they've done. But I think they removed this sort of hour requirement and must be in person, it must be this, it must be that. And it just said, you lawyer, figure out what is going to be relevant for you and go do it. 
just tell us that hand up that you did it. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, you know, self-directed learning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, they're all doing competency models. And so does that work like a competency model in a firm where it's like, okay, this is, we've, you know, somebody, some entity has decided that this is what you need to do in order to be competent? From what I've seen, at least with the UK and since they stopped the credit model and moved to the competency, I'm not as familiar with it. But if I recall correctly, they basically have to come up with their own kind of curriculum plan or their own plan to say, like, this is what I'm going to do this year in order to be a competent attorney. And these are the types of courses I'm going to take. So whether it's the firm directing it or the, the, the regulatory body saying, you know, you have to submit this plan and show that you completed this plan and really put the onus on the attorney to say, I, I, I did what I said I was going to do. And I did it within that time frame. They're able to do that with quite a bit of freedom. I haven't heard anything to say that, you know, they have to, or maybe like maybe one province might have like a specific, you have to earn so many credits in ethics or something like that. But I think everything else is pretty free form. I, again, I could be completely wrong. So I, I, it's been a little bit since I've had to look into the UK and provinces. Well, I'm already a big fan of the chocolate tasting idea. So I hope we, <laughs> I hope, I hope, I hope we see more of that. I've definitely heard of kayaking and CLE where, you go, you do, you do the CLE portion, and then you ha- you go kayaking. You go down the river a little bit. You pull over. You do a little bit more CLE, but the kayaking portion's not for credit. Ian, are you <laughs> Ian, are you taking notes on this? Because uh, I, I like that one. I like that yeah. one too. It's sort of the the wellness yeah. combined with the 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 furthering education. That that does sound good. That sounds fun. I once went to a CLE and ski in Utah, and that was yeah. pretty cool, too. That's <laughs> like very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Margaret Naughton, uh, Sarah Glassmeyer, and Ian Nelson, thank you so much for being on the show and, uh, you know, loved having this conversation. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having me, yeah. Thank you. I wish I'd been able to be a little more involved in this interview, uh, Marlene. <laughs> so, but I did love uh, the ideas being bounced around between the four of you. And, you know, at least what I've heard so far in the post-editing process. <laughs> you, you know, it's 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 really a big change in terms of what Hotshot is doing in terms of these these you know sort of bite-sized training classes being eligible for CLE. I mean, I think we've done sort of the bite-sized recordings for several years now, but we've never been able to uh, get the CLE around them. And I also love that they're doing, um, they're customizing it and, and basically integrating this into departments and firms' own um, competencies programs. They, there's probably more to come on this. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that it really kind of fits with the way today's learning is set up. So it it makes sense that this would be the next generation of the way that we teach our lawyers, and and it almost doesn't matter if it if it's new lawyers or well established lawyers that uh, this sort of training. Uh, seems to be effective, and I think it's time for the powers that be behind the CLEs uh, adjust to the times. No, like short short uh, sessions with reinforcement are, are really what's what works best for for adult learning. And I mean, look, none of none of us have four hours to, to sit at a time no. and and really focus on things. No, we don't. 
So thanks to Ian Nelson, Sarah Glassmeyer, and Margaret Naughton for a really great discussion. And thanks again to Jessica Gore for being the inspiration this week and, and giving us some insights on why she decided to publish uh, a very user-centric book on the federal rules of evidence. So thanks, Jessica. And of course, thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoyed the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at, at GayBauerM on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Or you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSica. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk with you later. All right. No more technical difficulties. I'm not promising.